0: Broadcasting from Washington, D.C., this is Insider's Guide to Energy.
1: Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me is co host Jeff McCauley. Jeff, how are you doing today?
2: Wonderful, Chris. We're getting uh, into winter here in, in Boston, so it's starting to get crisp outside.
1: We are recording this over the holidays. We're coming into Thanksgiving here in North America. This will come out a little bit after the holiday. But rather than talking about weather and time of year, what do you think we're going to talk about today?
2: I'm excited, as always, to talk about carbon markets and carbon as a commodity. Uh, Really excited to learn a lot, get into the real depth of the transaction structures here.
1: I I, I love the topic. I can't wait to get into the topic. I know our guest has a very interesting history, too, of how she got into the business and became an attorney in the business. So rather than pontificating, as I say, Jeff, why don't you bring our guest on board?
2: Yes, we are honored today to be joined by Dina Reitman of Counsel in the Finance, Energy, and Commodities Practice at DLA Piper. Dina, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: So, Dina, help us understand, I know you're coming at this from the perspective of a commodity attorney. This sounds really fascinating. Help us orient a little bit. Who are the types of clients that you're working with on a day-to-day basis?
0: Yes. So I am a commodities lawyer and it is just something that, as Chris alluded to, came to me as a blessing from a really hard situation. So I don't know if you know my story yet, Jeff, but I'm one of the first in the family to go to college and uh, I was blessed to go to NYU, um, but my parents could not afford a meal plan. So they did not put me on a meal plan, which meant I was literally starving to death. And so what I did was I walked around the World Financial Center and knocked on doors. I think I was 17, maybe just turned 18 years old and got an office managing position at a commodities trading desk. And so from 18 to today, which I will not tell you how long that is, sir, and you will not ask, I have been in commodities. And so for me, it's really important for people to understand carbon as a commodity, because that, in my opinion, is the way we will change the environment and change the world for the better.
2: It sounds like a, an amazing journey. I definitely want to ask you more about that um, as we get into the show here, but maybe just to start for our audience what is a commodity? I think that's a term that we use a lot, but maybe don't have a good working technical definition.
0: Yeah, you know that's a really good question because people really don't think of commodities. I mean, every time I say a commodities lawyer, it's inevitable that someone says, "Well, what's you know what security should I buy?" Or they ask me if they should invest in you know IBM stock or something. That is not a commodity. So, a commodity is, by definition, in the Commodity Exchange Act, it is agricultural products. It is metal products. It is energy products, okay? It is literally everything that we eat, use, consume, except for onions. I don't know, I guess in 1934, the onion uh, union or onion lobbyists had a really strong lobby and onions are not considered a commodity. But beyond that, what you should know about the commodities markets, because we're going to talk about carbon as a commodity, which obviously didn't exist in the 1930s when the act was made, is that the commodities markets are markets driven by supply and demand, right? So you have a supply and demand fundamental behind a commodities market, right? That drives the value of oil, for example. A lot of people know that oil is a good example of a commodity that's driven by supply and demand. If we withhold supply of oil, price goes up, right? Supply and demand. Now that should be That should be contrasted to what people think of as equity or securities, right? So again, my example of an equity is the stock goes up or goes down based upon the success or the profitability of that company, right? Because when you buy and own a piece of equity of a company, you want the company to do well, which is very different. And so commodities, when you think of commodities, you're thinking of a more broader sense of markets and from an economic perspective, supply and demand. And therefore, carbon, like any other commodity, is based upon supply and demand fundamentals.
2: And so when we think about these commodities and the manifestation of supply and demand, do commodities have to be traded on? They don't necessarily have to be traded on an exchange, but there is a trade, and that trade is based on some level of standardization. Is that inherent in the definition of commodities?
0: So that's a really good... Good point. So what a lot of people don't understand is that the commodities markets are regulated by, well, in this country, in the United States, are regulated by an entity called the Commodity Future Trading Commission. Now, they have jurisdiction over all commodities. So what people often say is, well, you know, I'm just buying and selling a commodity and delivering it physically to my counterpart. So therefore, I am not regulated, which is not The case in the United States, in the United States, that regulatory body that I just mentioned for short, the CFTC, they have jurisdiction over commodities, period, to prevent fraud and market manipulation. But what you mentioned that was really important is something different, which a lot of people confuse, and that is a future, an option, or a swap, okay? Now, a futures product is a product, it's a contract that is completely and totally standardized, right? And it has in it all the components of a commodity transaction, but it is traded on an exchange and it has to be, that's the law here. Those are futures options and swaps. There's a different type of exchange for swaps, right? And when you are dealing in a futures option or a swap, the CFTC jurisdiction is slightly higher or slightly different. I don't know if higher is the right word, but you have rules. Like you mentioned, you have to trade these things, these types of products on exchanges. You have reporting requirements. You have, if you're going to run these exchanges, you have the obligation to make sure your exchange prevents fraud, market manipulation, prevents cybersecurity attacks, right? So in this sense, there is a commodities market that is physically settled. There's a commodities market that is futures, swaps and options, and all have different layers of regulation in this country.
1: Yeah. Uh, the- the levels of regulation and you know, sometimes people being surprised that they actually are held accountable to these rules. I, I think uh, when I met you, we were at a show in Texas and I and heard regulators actually speaking about the fact of what's covered. Yes. Um, I, I guess when when we're talking about commodity, I, I think of something that's just the same, like like an electron or coal. When you talk about carbon, the, the challenge that's coming to my head, if we're going to get into the conversation of carbon, is not all carbon credits and carbon structures seem the same to me where, where carbon is. Am I misunderstanding something here? Or how does this become a commodity where we're at today?
0: Yeah, I don't think you're misunderstanding something, right? I just think that you have to think of it as any other commodity, right? So just think of oil. Oil has different grades or different uh, specifications. And based upon those specifications, it's valued differently, right? So we can get to the point where the carbon credit itself is only standardized, right? So it is one metric ton or one ton, T-O-N-N-E in the UK, of carbon dioxide equivalent, right? That is where it's standardized. Crude oil is crude oil is crude oil. However, right, what we need to understand is that what you just said, Chris, not all carbon is created equal, some people believe that carbon created from forests are not as valuable as carbon created from a methane capture where it's metered, right? Because one's based on a methodology where people measure and one's based on a meter. And these are, this is what we're de- developing and this is what we're figuring out right now as we build out this carbon as a commodity market. So it's a very, very intuitive question, Chris, because it is something that we need to deal with because Buyers want, you know, carbon from certain types of projects that are, that are meaningful to them. So you're right. It is something we will have to address.
2: Right. And this seems intuitive for any commodity as you zoom in, if we're using the example of crude, well, not all crude is created equal. Not It's not even traded equally. You've got right. different trading and settlement points, Brent or um, or West WTI. Texas Intermediate. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, to use that as analogy, do you think we're going to get, uh, we're going to have sour carbon credits and light sweet carbon credits? And we'll have this own, because there's a language about the quality of crude that is used and it influences the price. Do you see that evolving on the carbon side as well so that we resist this idea that everything has to be identical?
0: Yeah, I do think that that is coming. I think that that is what buyers in the market want. And I think it is our job or mine as a lawyer to see if we can facilitate this type of market and this type of business. I have a really cheesy saying that i put all over, you know, DLA Piper marketing material where we're using our legal skills for good. Right. I said, I've been doing this since I've been 18. I won't tell you how long that is, but 18 to now is a long time to be in the commodities markets. And we have to figure out how to use this skill and this knowledge of the markets for good. And we got to overcome or develop like you said the light and sweet or the heavy and sour right i don't know if it will be called that but if we can do that then we have carbon as a commodity and a market um that could help the environment
1: now anytime i'm in a business transaction that has to have legal involved the, uh, it doesn't seem like it's mainstream and there right you talked about future contracts being a standard contract you change them on an exchange um at this point, is carbon so early that that I need to have my attorney involved every time I'm doing
0: carbon transactions today? So it depends upon what you're doing, okay? And it depends upon who's involved. So the United States has a different regulatory regime than the UK, right? So if you plan to buy, sell, finance, um, perhaps structure a market, structure a product, and it could be offered in the United States or to a U.S. person, you need to understand the U.S. regulatory framework. If you're planning on doing this in the U.K., you need to understand the U.K. regulatory framework. They have a different regulatory framework. I don't know it as well, but I've got colleagues that help me, right? They believe that credits are derivatives, right? In the States, a credit could be considered a swap, but that has to do with the overall structure of your contract. So yeah, I mean... If you're planning on buying and selling carbon credits and you're not sure, you should have a lawyer involved because what you don't want is to structure a swap, for example, in this country and you know then not report it or, or keep the right records because there are ways to structure these transactions, financings that are with less regulatory overlay. Although you have to remember, there's always a regulatory overlay here because they will need to prevent fraud and market manipulation, which is incredibly broad. So, you know, don't mean to be, you know, shameless about it, but I think you need a commodities lawyer and you really need a commodities lawyer.
2: Right. And so Dina, help us break this down because if I took a flight on United Airlines and I click the button that says offset my CO2 by buying, that's one, that's a consumer and we can talk about whether I should or should not do that, but that's (laughs) on the voluntary market versus I think what you're hinting at, which are compliance markets or tax credits. So help us break down the the different layers. Maybe start with voluntary versus compliance
0: and oh uh, how you
2: think about those different.
0: I didn't mean to make it sound like a compliance market because I'm really talking about a voluntary market. Okay. So if you click that button that you'd like to purchase credit or have the airline purchase credit and retire on your behalf, that again, you're right. That is voluntary. If it is truly happening, I hope so, because again, there can't be fraud or market manipulation. And there also can't be, you know, there are also rules coming down from the FTC about marketing and marketing your carbon neutrality and marketing your carbon neutrality and net zero, right? So I sure hope that if you click that button, it truly is that the airline is buying a credit or a carbon credit from the voluntary market and retiring it on your behalf. However, you don't have proof of that, right? It's just you're literally going off of you're hoping they're doing what they're saying they're doing.
2: Is that a financial or physical contract that I'm entering into as a consumer?
0: See, Again, you have to be super careful. I don't know what it says when you hit the button. If they are literally buying a carbon credit and retiring it on your behalf, depending upon what that says, that has been deemed to be or could be deemed to be quote unquote, physical delivery to you because it's retired on your behalf and being consumed. However, you have to be really careful on the language and the words that you use, because all these questions are going to be questions de novo for the CFTC. If they're going to come down on the airlines and be like, listen, these are structured as swaps. I have no idea what the contract says. I will tell you, though, that in other types of contracts that have nothing to do with airlines, just counterparties delivery and transfer and physical delivery have to be defined very specifically to meet regulatory requirements. And they have to actually be intended to be physically delivered, which can be the retirement on behalf of someone else, although it has to be specifically listed. Now, I I want to go back to your other question though, Jeff, because you mentioned the compliance markets and then the voluntary markets. And you're probably right. We probably shouldn't make... A little bit of a statement as to what that is. So now a compliance market is when a state or a government dictates um, the amount of carbon that you can emit. And then if you're going to go above the allowed admittance, you have to have an allowance. So on a voluntary market, they're called carbon allowances, right? You get to A supply and demand fundamental. When you have a company that you know is able to emit less than that allowance, meaning they have some carbon to trade, and then you have another company that didn't do so well that year and emitted too much, and they need those allowances to buy and sell. So that's a different market. So we should probably, you know, and we're all developing the vernacular right now. So there's nothing right or wrong here, right? But there's a carbon credit, and then there's a carbon allowance. Two very different markets, two very different reasons, right? The carbon credit is the measurement of additional emission reduction below a baseline. No one is telling them that they can't admit they're doing it themselves and they're reducing below a baseline and that creates that CO2 equivalent, that credit that others can buy if they want to be carbon neutral or reduce their carbon output. Does that make sense?
2: It it did. Can I restate that? Because I, I think that was really elegantly put. Whereas in the compliance market, there's an allowance um, above or below a regulatorily set benchmark. And so that benchmark is set by some governing body. In the voluntary market, that additionality is set against a baseline which is defined by the seller. It's not set by a governing body. It might be verified by a third party but it's independently set baseline. So this credit, it's, it's all about crediting against that delta. What's the baseline or benchmark that you're comparing against? And that's the big driving factor. I think right. that was that's really definitely
0: a really great way to put it. So the delta is the additionality. And I love that you said that, you know, having an MBA in finance with a minor in statistics, I love that you use delta. But yes, that's perfect. It's the delta. But there's a new type of carbon credit coming, and those are um, metered or scientific based, and those are going to probably rock our world in a little bit. How I'm not sure, but that is a measurement that is scientifically measured or measured at a meter, and so um, it literally tells you how much carbon is coming out or how much carbon isn't coming out, right? So or captured, and that's what creates the the credit. So it's not a measurement of delta. It's it's actually a scientifically captured carbon number and those are those are new and hitting the market and buyers i bet you are going to like them
2: is that more in the case of something like carbon removal where you're actually taking something out of the air or out where you can meter it
0: yeah um yes you know one of the places i see this pretty often and pretty popular right now is in methane capture which is another greenhouse gas you capture that methane and measures how much methane has been captured and then you know uh, repurposed or used for I don't know you name it electricity production right or or just you know piped somewhere I mean that's a great measurement that I'm beginning beginning to see buyers being more and more interested in that type of carbon credit
2: so there's still a, a baseline but it's more scientifically measured because you can say that carbon would have literally gone out the the flu stack or would have been released as methane. So I'm metering that, I'm doing something else with it and I can measure the difference. So uh, that makes sense.
1: The, the, the carbon that we're talking about and, and the programs you're talking about, you, you said that you can't artificially change the market of things, but is there, del- is there denominations or less and less carbon being allowed to be released each year as, as the goal is to remove carbon? Is that not driving the market just by regulatory compliance saying that, you know, you can release this much this year and is there a graduated schedule?
0: Well, that's definitely in the compliance markets, yes. And there is a graduated schedule because we have to go back to what we mentioned in the beginning, right? Carbon as a commodity means what we're trying to create is a market driven on supply and demand fundamentals. So yeah, the goal is in those compliance compliance markets to continuously ratchet down the allowed admission, right? So you're literally creating Demand, and then not only are you creating demand, but you're almost like creating um, incentive for companies to reduce their emission below the ratcheted down allowance. So they, the, the the theory is that they will invest in technology, and that they will invest in lowering their emission because they do not want to have to buy allowances on the market. Which again, supply and demand fundamentals will become more and more and more expensive as the years go on because they will be less and less available, right?
1: So following on that then, I mean, there's some technology isn't going away right away, right? Although people would love to see no more hydrocarbons used, they're they're still around for some period of time. North American gas market's still going to be here. The chemical market still uses uh, hydrocarbons for some period of time. So are we getting towards an intersection of the cost value that maybe carbon capture... sequestration becomes more important in the business cycle? Are you starting to see us there? Are we still so early in the market that there's enough pieces of the pie that you can just go buy carbon credits today and maybe not have to implement some of these other techniques to reduce carbon?
0: So I think we're early on in the market, Chris. I have to say we're early on. You see a lot of first movers here and they do come from the hydrocarbon space. So I just don't believe in a solution where we won't have hydrocarbon technology or hydrocarbons involved. I'm just it's just sorry, I don't I don't see it. Right? My clients for the most part are all over the spectrum. They're buyers, they're technology companies, but you will also know and I will tell you that a lot of them come from the hydrocarbon space. They have knowledge, they have experience, they have drive to figure out how to reduce carbon. And a lot of them have money to put towards tech. So they do. And so we can't make an enemy of the hydrocarbon industry. We need to embrace them in this space, period. We need to flip this on its head that 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 is a bad space to be in. It is not. They are helping drive solution.
2: Great. So you mentioned this idea of force for good. And when we talk about additionality, that's something that we want to happen that wouldn't have otherwise. And fundamentally, this is about valuing a negative externality and and all that stuff. So what are the projects that carbon credits on the voluntary market in your mind are enabling? Why is this a good thing that's actually moving markets?
0: So there's a lot of different types of projects. Okay. Everybody knows about forest projects right about not destroying forests and trees naturally removing carbon from the air we all know that from like the third grade or maybe it's the fifth grade science i can't remember one of those there are also other types of projects so i've been involved in um projects for um the development of cook stoves in africa maybe like three or four projects there where um, the project itself is a manufacturing of this product that reduces carbon and reduces carbon in many uh, aspects, right? Because people are given stoves, they're not cutting down trees, you know, to to burn wood, etc. It has been my experience that these types of projects pop up in all different places. I have another project of rice farmers that you're never going to believe this, but they literally go back and use techniques from the 1400s and 1600s, and it reduces carbon just by going back to basics, right? So it's a farming conglomerate of rice farmers that are reducing carbon. And in and in this process, they are creating this carbon reduction, which is the asset that we then will hope to commoditize for them to sell. And then if they sell those credits, they're then able to have more finance come into the project, to then scale and do this on a larger basis. So you see that finance will come in to scale these projects. And the more finance comes in, the more projects be, will be able to be scaled and the more impact we'll be able to have.
2: Great, and you mentioned uh, markets, right? And so where can somebody buy these? And then um, very conscious that there's a lot of questions, you mentioned traceability, Uh, fraud, additionality, all of these things that there's a lot of buyer beware out there. So what are the things that people should um, be thinking about as they're learning more about this market and considering purchases?
0: Yeah. So you can buy carbon credits through registries. Okay. There's multiple, multiple registries online. You can search for these registries. You can search for the types of projects you like. You could search for the location of where the projects are, and you can buy carbon credits online through registries. And then you take these credits, you take physical delivery of these credits into your account on these registries. And then if you want to help the environment, you retire them, which means you consume them, which means they can no longer be used, right? Which means that carbon can no longer be created. And that's how you use personally, if you'd like, the voluntary carbon markets. It's expensive. There is a lot of buyer beware because you need to make sure that you are buying from a registry that is transparent. One of the trends we're seeing, Jeff, is that more and more registries are thinking they need to go digital because buyers are going to want to see the traceable information about how that carbon credit is created. Because unlike oil, where you pull it out of the market, you can see it. You don't see anything. So you'll see a trend here, because we do have a lot of buyer beware, Jeff, is that more and more registries, more and more people that want to get into this market are trending towards digitizing not only the credit itself, but the information tagged to the credit. So you know for sure that the carbon has been created, that it hasn't been bought or sold by somebody else, or you know honestly, that it hasn't been retired by someone else. Because there's been a lot of issues early on in the market with people buying credits that have already been retired. And we can hopefully overcome all those with digitization or some type of digital technology.
2: And last question on on this. So when we think about those buyers, it's not just individuals, these are corporations. And so there are corporate targets out there. I think Microsoft has, was one of the ones that's gone the farthest saying, not only are we going to um, make sure that our energy consumption is from renewable energy sources. So that's more like a REC analog. A wreck. Not only are we going to offset our current, but we're going to go negative. We're actually going to buy emissions reductions. So when you think about the different types of either electricity uh, offset or carbon negative, what do you think is the leading strategy for corporations when they're thinking about buying these uh yeah, so I, you
0: purchases? do raise a really good point. We shouldn't confuse these two asset classes. So renewable energy credit is one megawatt. It represents one megawatt of power that was created from a renewable energy source that is a different asset class than your one metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Okay. So we have a lot of people mixing and matching these two things. And yes, I understand that renewable energy does reduce carbon, but they are two totally different markets, two totally different asset classes. So companies that are really thinking of reducing their carbon footprint overall will have to use a mixture of recs and carbon credits okay it's not just one or the other but it's but it's not the same thing right so to claim your carbon neutral you know i don't know if you can use a rec to claim carbon neutrality right because there are other types of you know that's literally your your fuel perhaps that goes to your carbon intensity as a business but it doesn't go to creating carbon neutrality um, completely. Like you will have to use some carbon uh, type of offset uh, in that regard if you're planning to use these markets. Right? You mm-hmm. could also just change your technology and not use these markets.
2: I'm hesitant to mention this particular can of worms, but when you think about EPA scope one, two, three emissions, do the carbon credits that you're thinking about relate to a particular scope or they can be used broadly or not the same thing?
0: No, they can be used broadly. I believe that they can be used broadly. I mean, we're still trying to figure all this out. And as more and more regulators get into the space, we'll know what they believe as well. Like California just came out with a brand new piece of legislation outlining what they believe is the appropriate use of carbon offsets, right? You know, you have to understand there's a big school of thought out there that thinks if you really are using too many carbon offsets, and then they call it offset, not a carbon credit, you really aren't doing anything to help the environment. You're just continually doing what you're doing, but then you're going to buy offsets to offset your emission, right? But So there are some governments that believe that that's not the answer. So they're going to put, like California did, they'll put caps on the amount of carbon offsets you can buy and then claim to the world, your investors, your buyers, your consumers, that you're carbon neutral. So we're all still figuring this out, right? It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not the answer. It just means that we're going through the start of a brand new market.
1: And and I think this conversation has shown me your passion in and understanding of carbon. Um, I want to go back to your personal journey a bit, right? So we, we've we've gone a good bit into carbon here. Um, how does one go from working on a trading desk or managing trading as a university student to being an attorney focused so much on carbon?
0: So I think that what you should know about my story is that I had to be brave, right? There was just no answer besides being brave, right? Going to NYU without a meal plan is kind of brave. Knocking on doors is kind of brave. I mean, you just have to be brave. So what happens is I think, that that mindset or personality trait allows people to come to me and know that they can ask questions about this carbon market, which really we don't know all the answers. And they know that I'm brave enough to be like, I really don't know the answer, but let's figure it out, right? And that's sort of what I've been doing. And that's what's led me to so passionately focus on carbon and hydrogen and all these greenhouse gases, because I know that with the years in commodities, which we will not mention again how much they are, that I can sit in a room with someone who's trying to do something, obviously, to help the environment, but obviously also to make money. And I can help them, you know, at least for what we're doing right now, figure out the way to do it in this commodities market. And it'll be right for today, but maybe tomorrow we'll have to change it. And that's okay too, because we're developing this market.
1: And how big is the legal community around specifically carbon markets, right? So you're saying it's early. Uh, you work for one of the largest law of firms around. Um, is this something that pretty much, you know, if I was sitting in Houston, would be sitting in a room with a 100 of your colleagues talking about this? Or is this uh, still in the handfuls?
0: I don't know. I think that's a very good question. I think it may be uh, in the handfuls. I'm not sure. There's only a certain number of people that I see on other sides of deals. But it will get there. It will grow. We will train one another and help each other. So that's one great thing about the legal profession.
2: Wonderful. And Dina, I'd like to ask all of our guests on behalf of listeners who are really interested in this, and clearly we're only scratching the surface, what recommendations do you have for people who are excited to learn more about this and navigate the twists and and turns of this market uh what resources would you recommend people pursue
0: so the resources would be i would make yourself familiar with the registries right so definitely google you know carbon registries i would make yourselves familiar with the different types of compliance markets one of the most popular compliance allowance market is in California perhaps go and then review that and see the differences between the voluntary and the compliance markets. I then would say that you should venture over to the CFTC's website and read all the CFTC uh, press releases and announcements on the carbon markets and what they plan to do. There's also been some legislation that has come down... From I think the Senate because it's only proposed at this time about carbon and digital assets. Go find that legislation, read the proposals. Again, it's a it's a interplay between how carbon is a commodity or how all these greenhouse gases uh, create commodities and who's going to regulate the market. And then honestly, um, you know th- there are courses out there. Like for example, I teach a graduate course in carbon. And if you want to really pursue a career here, you have to find a college that teaches or has classes in true commodities that you can then expand to a class in carbon or the carbon markets.
2: Dina, thanks so much. You've really been helpful here in helping us navigate through the legal, financial and compliance issues surrounding these evolving markets. Uh, Really, thank you so much. And there's a lot more that you've provided for us to learn about. Really appreciate your time today.
0: Yes, my pleasure. Anytime.
1: For our audience, we we hope you've enjoyed this episode. It was great to find out more about the emerging carbon markets, uh, why you might want to use an attorney when you're doing deals and, and where it's all headed. So if you enjoyed this content, don't forget to subscribe. Check us out on our YouTube channel. Definitely subscribe there so you don't miss any of the exclusive content. And we'll see you again next time on the Insider's Guide to Energy podcast. Bye-bye for now.